Hi, I'm Dan. Hi, I'm Jenny, and this is Rookie Movie Reviews. And Dan, what do we do on this podcast? What we're doing on this podcast is running through the top 100 movies of all time on IMDb, as chosen by uh, fan voters, not critic voters. And uh, yeah, we're, we're over 52 or more through, I think. That's with B-plots, if you're going by episode count. Yes. Yeah, we, we're 52 episodes in. In terms of movies, I haven't done a count in a bit, but... No, me neither. So last week, we talked about Godzilla because we needed a break. These movies are getting pretty heavy. Mm-hmm. They're... What did we watch before Godzilla? We actually watched The Kid with Charlie Chaplin. Oh, and then before that, it was Star Wars. Uh, we're trying. <laughs> <laughs> this pandemic's bad. Yeah. It's been a year of this. But they are getting heavy. Everything left on the list, with a few rare exceptions, is like three hours or uh, very, very dour. And to that end, what did we watch for this episode? This week we watched The Pianist. By Roman Polanski, who, uh, just to get it out of the way real quick, very problematic person. Yeah. And it's kind of weird, because... If you're curious, just Google him. He's a predator, and he is hiding outside of America to avoid the law. And this movie was made after that happened, and it was still nominated. And it's just so weird that a person can be a known predator, or I guess known in the sense that he is avoiding the justice system by hiding in a different country. He's never been convicted, I suppose. Um, But it's weird that he can do that and then make a movie... And everybody in the Academy is like, well, it's a great, it's a good movie. Yeah. And it's on this list. And it is a good movie. You just got to separate the art from the creator on this one. Because it's also like the art from the creator. I was reading the Wikipedia page. Mm -hmm. And he was born, he's uh, he's Polish. And he was born during World War II. And he escaped the Krakow ghetto. And hid in a barn house until the end of the war. As, um... Like, hiding for his life, pretty much. Uh, Yeah, Roman Polanski went through all that shit. And uh, his father almost died in concentration camps, and they were reunited after World War II. It's really inspiring. And then he went and committed horrific crimes against the minor. So, it's like, goddamn, if... It's very complex in the fact that it's like such a painful story, but also not complex at all in the fact that there's really no interpretation to uh, what he clearly did. So, I don't know. I just wanted to get that out of the way because it bugs me <laughs> on a deep level. Yeah. Um, okay. So, this movie also, we should say, is not, like, it's heavy. It, yeah. And we're going to talk about the plot and everything and... It's not a movie you should watch like, oh, I heard this one's good. It's kind of like one that you should watch if you're like, I really want to connect with the human condition or whatever and experience, like, have an empathetic experience. It's not something you would watch for enjoyment or to think like, damn, that's some really good directing. Maybe you would. I, don't know. I wouldn't. Is that fair? Yeah, this movie came out in 2002. And I would have been, I guess, eight, probably. Yeah. 
because I was born in 94, and I just don't know the month it came out. Um, Oh, thank you. So, I watched this movie when I was a kid, and I should not have. (laughs) It's not a kid movie. Don't don't let your children watch this. Yeah, or... I guess I blacked out a lot of it, too, because I watched it... We just watched it again, my second time. Uh, Now I'm 26. And we watched the first hour of this and had to stop because it was too depressing. It is horrific. And we took a break to watch Waterworld. Yeah. We also, of course, need to dedicate about 20 minutes this podcast episode to talking about (laughs) Waterworld. That's where we'll get our levity. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah. But to kind of launch into the plot here. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, it ta- it starts off in 1939, and we uh, see this guy whose name is uh, Vladislaw, but he's just called Blodek uh, throughout the movie. He is a Polish-Jewish piano player. Pugsley, and... how can you eat a time like this? <laughs> Do you think that's getting caught on <laughs> Probably, like... but it'd be a fun Are little... we powering through it? <laughs> yeah, let's power through All it. All right. Uh, so he's playing on the radio. He's playing the piano. He plays for a radio broadcaster. When the station is bombed during the Nazi German invasion of Poland, they hope for a quick victory, and uh, Vladik Spielmann is his name, and his family celebrate together when they learn that Britain and France have declared war on Germany, and they think, okay, this is going to be great. It's going to be over real quick. Aid is coming. Uh, Unfortunately, that does not happen. Fighting lasts for over a month in this German invasion. German and Soviet armies invade Poland at the same time on different fronts. Warsaw becomes part of a Nazi-controlled general government, and soon Jews are prevented from working or owning businesses, and they're also made to wear blue Star of David armbands. So the beginning of this movie views time in a very quick manner, like months pass in just a few minutes, and it's very effective to show, like, you know, I think the intention and the effect is that it's like, wow, this kind of situation has worsened incredibly quickly. It goes from a bomb explosion to not 20 minutes later, they're being forced to mark themselves with these armbands. So I think if that was, that must have been an intentional choice on the director's part. And I think it was pretty effective, if not a little jarring, but also that might be the goal to be jarring. Pugsley's just really eating. He's really munching right now. He had a stressful event. He he gets chased by cabbage, and he has learned if he screams like a woman, we'll come to his aid much quicker. So we'll hear his cougar yells throughout the house. <laughs> and when we come around the corner, they're not even touching. Yeah. He's just screaming bloody murder. By November of the next year, the Spielman family are being relocated into the Warsaw Ghetto, That's a pretty famous ghetto in Poland where many Jewish people were held as prisoners and they were cordoned off into a particular part of the city. And conditions there are pretty bad. People starve. The SS guards are brutal. They're Nazis. Go figure. There are starving children who are abandoned and dead bodies everywhere. And on one occasion, the Spielman family witnessed the SS kill an entire family in an apartment across the street during a roundup including a horrific scene where they dump a man in a wheelchair out of a window to his death. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and at this point, I think we were 
30 minutes into the movie and it's like oh my god i don't know how much gas i have left in me to get through this it's uh it's very very tough and i will say that while they talk about bodies and everything being on the streets this is one of those things that i again have to kind of praise the movie for to like stick with its intention of showing the horrific truth rather than you know adrian brody who plays uh vladek doesn't come to the apartment he's like oh it's horrible i saw dead children it uh shows you dead children on the street and everyone is so accustomed to this that they are forced to just kind of walk around or ignore these bodies and it's the concept of show don't tell to its most extreme effective end i think you know yeah I would agree. Um, in 42. <laughs> Sorry, do you think that the drop of your cider made its way? Maybe. We're drinking some ciders. Uh, another levity break here. The Restoration Cider Company uh, has a series of ciders. And this company is great because it's local to Wisconsin. And it's also veteran-owned. And 5% of the proceeds go to stream restoration yeah and it's a bit pricey but this has got to be the best cider we've had in a long time what's the reds yeah reds gives me angry orchard yeah those give me acid reflux i had to stop drinking those but this is bon appetit i haven't read the ingredients on this but i'd wager that reds is like adding tons of sugar and this is just the apples or pears or whatever yeah, that naturally ferment. Oh, yeah. You, you read the, I don't know if you read the ingredients on recording, but it's apples, pears, potassium sorbate, and then sulfites. Not like tons of sugar or whatever added in for sweetener. Horses and cows, maybe, maybe not as much cows, but when apples fall from the tree, they'll start fermenting on the ground. So those animals like to eat those and get a little loopy because of the alcohol. <laughs> that's, that's cute. It's much cuter than what happens next. Yeah. So what happens next is in 42, so some years pass. And again, the beginning, very quick. This pace. is after the bombing of Pearl Harbor for, for those who are interested. So on December 11th, 1941 is when the U.S. Didn't declare war, but that's when the first act of aggression from the Axis powers came, and then the U.S. joined the war. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Yes. Uh, the U.S., sorry, to say again, the United States don't really get talked about as a driving force. And I think that's pretty important, because a lot of takes on, on World War II were that Britain, kind of, Britain and Germany, not Germany, uh, Britain... And the Soviet Republic were kind of the winners, but having the U.S. support ended up being about when the war was won by the Allies. Spoiler alert. Mm -hmm. So in U.S. history classes, we give a lot of false attribution to the United States. Yeah. Which, I mean, our support was necessary. Necessary. Also, very delayed. Yeah. I think that's another... If there was a holistic movie about world war ii that included all the political factors behind why did we let this happen to the jewish people i i want to watch that movie Mm -hmm. because that's 
messed up too. It's it's probably like uh, Doctor Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Like watching these politicians panic, it would be kind of a farce, but it would be reality because you know behind closed doors there are plenty of conversations happening. Like what we're doing at the border to people coming up from South America, I think it is on par with any form of genocide, including that of Germany against uh, the Jewish people. Yeah, and they're they, you know not just Jewish people, like the disabled, homosexuals, black people, uh, the Roma too. I think that that's just you know that I'm rambling now, but uh, it's fucked up. It's fucked up, and I would love to know more about how people let this happen to Jewish people, how people let this happen to just an entire, like, all of Europe. The whole, the world war, you know? Yeah. It, there are essays, etc., but fuck reading. <laughs> Give me that movie, JK. Yeah. But. And there's, there's so many documentaries, but as you said, like, everything is so skewed. America leaning like if you think of World War Two movies it's like Saving Private Ryan which we're gonna have to watch uh, fairly soon and yeah. then video games like World War Two video games are just such a common trope and they're all about you know American heroism and everything because D-Day is so uh, pivotal and such a critical moment that it's like oh that's that's a defining moment of the war and it's like it's a defining moment of the war, not the defining moment. But, yeah, things things are really crazy, and that's a really good point you raise. Like, there's a lot of parallels to be drawn just in terms of willful ignorance, because it's easier to not concern yourself with it. I mean, it, it's not like you and I are hopping down to the border, guns a-blazing, to free the children. But, yeah. I don't know. There are leaders who are in charge of this. Yeah, it's a very twisty, turny... Yeah rabbit hole to say the least but i agree with you that'd be a very interesting like verifiably impartial look that could just look at everything that occurred and delays and all that this human suffering this movie really made me kind of think about a lot of people put down the true crime obsession because it's suffering porn mm-hmm. and it's like oh no it's it's so interesting to learn about the machinations of the human mind and this movie really made me think like people who are super into world war Two might be a little messed up yeah just or the holocaust yeah i think there's a, a point where it's because as you said it would be interesting to know more mm-hmm. but also some people are like oh the war machine is really incredible in sufficiency when you examine it and it's like yeah but it's kind of weird to like get super hype about how quick people can build tanks and shit yeah because that's i mean not to it's painting with a broad brush but when you think of a stereotypical history buff it's world war ii and it's the battles it's not it's not the uh the politics or the behind the scenes or the the people involved it's the uh it's the critical moments in general strategy you know yeah there are political history buffs yeah but they aren't as prominent yeah i'm i'm saying like if you meet someone they're like i love history is your first thought my first thought is always world war ii world war ii maybe the greeks yeah if they're feeling frisky things like that 
who can tell me more about... Uh, well, I guess Egypt, too, is probably going to be in there, because the pharaohs... Are, that's super interesting stuff, too. Mm-hmm. I would... Ancient, ancient history is really cool, because it's easier to be like, oh, those aren't real people. Those are figureheads. Yeah. Yeah, history... It's like, history is so cool, and not to decry the study of history in general. I mean, obviously, right. it's important, but just kind of making monkey shines at that stereotypical type person that comes in and tells you some, like, how fast Panzer tanks were or something. Yeah. So, shut up. Uh, okay, so we put off oh, the... Oh, also, not to knock my dad, because I know he's super into World War Two, <laughs> <laughs> And he's also into true crime, so... Yeah. I'm into true crime. Yeah, there, I, there's there's a lot of interesting uh, ethical, because I'm I don't know the name for that region, field of study, but isn't there like an entire field of study that looks into the ethics of narratives around historical study in general, like maybe anthropology? Probably. But oh, I get well, anthropology is kind of a cultural study, so I guess it would kind of fit into that. Mm-hmm. Ah, yeah, there's so much. It's. The world is so full of wonder and beauty, and I just want to watch King of the Hill. <laughs> Good cap. So we put off the roughest part of the movie for long enough. We fast forward to 1942. Spielman and his family are about to be transported to Treblinka, an extermination camp, as part of Operation Reinhardt. Now, these uh, details I'm pulling from... Um, I'm pulling from Wikipedia, and it doesn't say in the movie, like, a person says to Vladek, like, hey, we're apparently going to Treblinka, that's what I've heard. But no one says, Operation Reinhardt is underway, and we're going to the Treblinka extermination camp. The movie is very much rooted in how, like, you see everything from Vladek's point of view, and things are learned as he learns them, and it's very chaotic because of that, and it's very scary because of that. But as he's going through, a friend of his, and and I say friend, but it's more of a person he knows that he's kind of emotionally bribed by appealing to his sense of authority uh, earlier in the movie, and he is in the Jewish ghetto police, he recognizes Vladek, and he separates him from his family, like, as they're being loaded onto the trains uh, that are going to bring them to the death camp. And he separates him from his family and gets him away from the trains. He becomes a slave laborer, learns of a coming Jewish revolt through a friend of his, and then he begins helping the resistance by smuggling weapons into the ghetto. On one occasion, he narrowly avoids a suspicious guard, uh, and this guard just, because uh, he's putting guns in potato sacks, and a guard comes in, and you think he's about to get caught with this gun, but it's just um, some contraband grains this time around which was very lucky. He manages to escape the ghetto, going into hiding with help from a non-Jewish friend um, from his past, uh, named Andre and Janina, his wife. And this is kind of skating over a lot, but there's long segments, like there's a segment where they go through the effort to get work permits so they can work in the ghetto, and it's a very difficult, shady-type interaction with a different uh jewish person in the ghetto that has connections outside of the ghetto and they get these work permits and they ultimately fail anyhow and when they fail it's very emotional because vladek feels as though he's 
you know, getting the, the thing he tried to save his family with ripped away from him. They get brought to this holding space separated from their family. And we just kind of see all of these Jewish people in the direct sunlight uh, suffering, being held for who knows how long. The family gets reunited through what is presented as a miraculous event, just because they are probably all wondering what happened to the other family members. And then it culminates in them in, in them being put on a train. And this was the point where Jenny and I looked at each other and thought, uh, can't finish this tonight because mm-hmm. the movie up to this point has been uh, pure misery and not an exploitative, which makes it worse. Because if the movie was just like, oh, don't you feel bad about the things happening to these characters and then play some sad music, it would be tough. But this is like true inspection of suffering and it is very difficult to watch. So uh, we took a break and watched Waterworld later on, um, which is a more ridiculous movie and a definite palate cleanser. So if you have to break this up, recommend putting Waterworld in there. It's only on Netflix until April 30th, so you better watch The Pianist soon so you can break it up with Waterworld by tabbing (laughs) over. Yes. Uh, Jenny, do you have any thoughts on that big... uh, difficult segment otherwise let's take some time to talk about Waterworld. i was just going to talk more about some of the human suffering that really struck me mm-hmm. the boy selling caramels for 20 zolots which we have learned is a significant sum of money but the family knows where they're going next they don't need money because they've kind of come to the understanding that they're they're being sent off to die. Mm-hmm. There's a point by the brother, who's a bit of a rebe- rebellious one, that there's no way these people are going to be capable of labor. This isn't a labor camp send off. Mm-hmm. And then after Adrian Brody gets saved, just him walking through the streets of the ghetto with abandoned suitcases and him crying. Because he has just been saved, but his entire family is doomed, and all of these people are doomed. So just thinking about the scale of that, like you hear about uh, any of the death camps or work camps, and the piles of shoes that they have in memoriam. Mm-hmm. It was recently Yom HaShoah, which is the Holocaust Remembrance Day, so it felt a little apt to watch The Pianist, but what an oppressive and sad movie this is. But I guess uh, there is value in connecting with human emotion, even though it's uncomfortable. It makes me, uh, you know, want to punch a Nazi. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It it fills me with, like, such a, like, mix of sadness and empathy and rage and all that, which, yeah. you know, any, any sane person would feel. And it's just such a close look at all of it that it's very, very difficult. The You said about the uh, scale, mm-hmm. pretty much, of, of both the, the human life involved, but this movie also does, it, it spans time so efficiently mm-hmm. and human connection so efficiently, and it, it feels like it covers an entire lifetime, and it's two and a half hours long, which feels long, especially when the subject is so tough, but... 
they it's so effective in those two and a half hours that it feels like you've experienced this whole existence i don't know like, and the holocaust was 10 10 ish years i guess the real ramp up to it from uh well 39 is when it really started to 45 yeah the movie i mean the movie begins with the displacement of jewish people there is yeah there is more before that yeah so. and then near the end is the uh the the uh you know v-day i guess it's called uh where camps are liberated and then we see a little more into the future after that but it is uh you know probably six or seven years but the movie itself is uh six so water world uh, <laughs> starring kevin costner mm-hmm. it's uh, mad max with boats mm-hmm. and i was super hyped to watch this one because it, it was a break from it, this it was a break from this it was we were looking through the netflix catalog after being torn apart by you know the loss of uh Vladek's entire family yeah i i was crying too hard to like this movie was so the pianist was so hard to focus during because mm-hmm. you're just actively looking for respite yeah it's like what are my coping mechanisms activate activate mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh this one Waterworld, ridiculous movie and it was kind of like i went i we picked this one because i knew it was one of the biggest uh flops of all time it's like the historic flop of of movies and everybody knows it for that and it wasn't as bad as i was expecting it wasn't as bad as I had hoped it would be. It wa- what? It wasn't... I'm sorry. There was one we just watched that was actually bad. Are you referring to that horror movie? Yeah. Um, the... Beach House? No, not Beach House. Mm. Beach House was uh, boring, but not bad. The Awakening? The Illusion, I think it was called. Google the uh, the illusion, not the illusionist. Horror movies are generally really bad, though. Um, well, that's not. Uh, there are more bad horror movies than there are good horror movies, and bad horror movies are cheap to make. The apparition is what it was called. Oh yeah, that that was rough. That yeah. had um Draco Malfoy in it. Yeah, Tom Felton. Tom Felton, thank you. And yeah, don't don't bother watching that. Jenny and I always look up, or I always look up, and then make Jenny guess the Rotten Tomato score for movies we're about to watch. Yeah. And this time I thought, you know, let's, let's watch a movie. Looked it up after it had three <laughs> percent, and uh, that felt high. It was <laughs> so bad. Uh, Waterworld, I would give forty percent. Forty percent. Not fresh. The. The general plot of Waterworld is that there's this guy played by Kevin Costner. This is the first Kevin Costner movie I saw. Yes. I I forget what show. I've seen Mr. Brooks. Uh, So we're not really watching the best of his catalog, I guess. uh, Uh, He's a very disgusting looking man on a water-covered planet. And he goes into this town where a young girl has a tattoo on her back, which is the map to dry land. Because the entire world is underwater. Well... 
It's, is it? It's the water world. Most even the synopsis says most of the world. Yeah. <laughs> it's like okay. Spoilers. I, I see where this is going. But yeah, he he gets this uh, young girl and her mother, and then they sail across the world uh, while they're chased by this gang called the Smokers. Because there are cigarettes still. Yeah, there's tons of cigarettes. There, <laughs> there's cigarettes, bullets, uh, fuel. And they say a couple times that this happens hundreds of years after the cataclysmic event of all the polar ice caps melting at once and flooding the world. Like, Which, how would that even work? If ice melts in a cup, it doesn't overflow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. I don't believe that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's bad. I don't know. Uh, so you say 40%. I'd, I'd agree with that. It's kind of funny just because Kevin Costner is... His character is an asshole. The yeah, whole he movie. sucks. He's he... like violent and scary towards the people he's helping. Mm-hmm. And he sells them yeah. to a stranger, and then he changes his mind. But dude sold him for some paper. Yeah, he which is a great metaphor. Because why does anyone do anything? Chasing paper. Yeah, chasing yeah. that dollar bill. Very deep, then. Mm-hmm. world. Very insightful. Deep like the ocean, which covers the water world. Yes. There is a appearance by Jack Black in this movie. Uh-huh. So if you watch it and then you get to the scene where someone's flying a plane, which also exists in Waterworld, uh, the pilot of that plane is Jack Black, hero of our story. He is the hero of our story. And there's another surprise cameo that you might not be aware of in this one. And it does, it shares a common theme with... Uh, Godzilla, which is probably going to be even more surprising, but Lance Reddick is in on the screen for five seconds. <laughs> He's also in The Pianist for five seconds. <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be fantastic if he, his entire career is just bit parts in every single movie. Like Margot Martindale? Yeah, <laughs> character actress Margot Martindale. Now that we're in the levity portion of the podcast, what was the movie we watched? Waterworld? No, the other one. With Adrian Brody. King Kong? With Adrian Brody? Adrian Brody's in King Kong um, from 2005. What's the 2002 movie we watched? Oh! <laughs> I thought you were looking for a funny movie. I'm like, we haven't watched anything else with Adrian Brody. I, King Kong? I don't know. Uh, pianist. We're pianist? Going... <laughs> Are you saying penis? Yeah, <laughs> The penis. <laughs> yeah. Oof. One of the saddest movies ever. And it makes you say penis. <laughs> I, was, I was crying during the penis. <laughs> I couldn't take the penis. It was too hard. <laughs> the penis made me so sad. Ah, uh, Okay. That's why we had to watch Waterworld. Yeah. We just kept laughing at the title. No! And there'd be human suffering and we'd be like, yeah, but that title. The Pianist. Uh, should we get back to the Pianist? Do we want to talk about how Waterworld ends? Oh, yeah. So, this mariner is a bastard. For some reason, they still have lime trees and tomato trees. Who knows where they're getting these seeds? We've also been listening to The Road recently, so I've been thinking about that. But The Road is desolate by desolated by nuclear warfare. The water world's just watery. 
Do you think, uh, since it's also climate change, is it also just tropical everywhere? Probably. It looks hot. Yeah. And they go very far. Anyway, Waterworld ends. They capture the map girl, and the mariner saves her. And the most exposition of his character is done by the girl, who is incidentally Deb in Napoleon Dynamite later in her life. (laughs) But he saves her, and then the map on her back leads to a mountain in Japan. Which is dumb because it's it's a circle uh-huh. with a mountain coming out of it. Uh-huh. And then an arrow pointing out of the mountain. <laughs> That's the whole tattoo. And they devise a plan to get there. And the way they devise this is that she was getting into a boat or something upside down. So like her head was near the floor as she was clambering up. And this character is like, oh, it, we just flip the directions. Like, this map gives us directions, and we can never find it, so we're going to flip them. And then we're going to go the opposite way. And then they find the mountain in a couple minutes. And uh, then they, they settle, and the mariner says, I'm going to go back out on the ocean. Could you imagine living your whole life on the ocean and finding land and thinking, no thanks? Well, he's also a mutant. He's Yeah, we didn't fish. cover that. He has gills. In, in 200 years, he grew gills. I think whim, uh, women, men, but, you know, females, you know, girl power, would evolve to get blowholes first, like the dolphin. You think that'd be quicker then? But then he wouldn't be able to, he would still be holding his breath. I don't know about that one. I mm. think gills. Gills first? I would want gills. Because... I, I could give myself a blowhole right now. Uh-huh. <laughs> very assertive pickaxe in my back. I don't. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so anyway, in the penis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, the second half is much more uh, bearable than the first in terms of... Like, it's still rough, but yeah. it's it's not... The first half of the movie is entirely like... Here's the ramp up of the persecution of the Jewish people. Yeah. And some of the most horrific things that they had to endure uh, to a degree. Um, <laughs> like, I, I don't know how to put it tactfully, but it's basically like first movie is the being wantonly murdered and persecuted and enslaved and jailed and all that. And then the second one is the second half is a focus on Adrian Brody's survival specifically yeah which is all of the bad stuff is still going on in the background but the rest of this movie is you're connecting one-on-one with the suffering of one man which still weighs heavy on the heart Mm -hmm. but it doesn't leave you feeling quite as empty as the millions of souls who suffered throughout the holocaust Mm -hmm. now that we have serious mode back on Let's get into The Pianist. In April of 1943, Spielman watches from his window in his flat provided for him by Andrej and the wife Janina, his actress and musician friend from the before times. He watches from his window the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, which he had helped with by providing guns to the resistance forces and passing messages. And while it unfolds, he watches some minor success, but ultimately, it does fail. 
the failure of this also makes uh, his his um, the people who are helping him they become concerned. They say, we can't help you anymore. We can't bring you food. So he stays in the apartment because he doesn't know where else to go. And while looking for food, he accidentally breaks a bunch of dishes, which alerts the neighbor to his presence. And the neighbor asks him for his identification pa papers. And when he doesn't provide them, she accuses him of being a Jew and yells at him and chases him out of the flat. So he has to flee to a new hiding place that he got from a scrap of paper from his initial helpers. And he goes there and it's his, it's an admirer from when he was a pianist. And they help him and they have a secondary man. So it's just a series of people who are willing to help. And in this room there is a piano, but he can't play it. And the man who was supposed to help him is evil. And he collects money on Wallach's behalf, but he keeps all of it. He doesn't bring him enough money. And he almost dies of jaundice, and he is saved because his actor friend, or his admirer, comes to check in on him before she flees to a safer part of the country. Yes, and after this, he's, he's barely you know saved from the brink of death by his friend and he's across the street from what is basically a german military police station and a hospital mm -hmm. are both across the street and during the 1944 warsaw uprising the home army again nothing is specifically named we're all we're watching this entirely from his perspective uh from vladek's perspective so it's basically just, oh, those are not Germans, these are Germans, there's gunfire directly out my window, things are happening, nobody really knows what. But uh, the home army attacks a German building across the street, tank shells hit the apartment, and he is uh, forced to flee because there's just outright war happening uh, on his street. Over the course of a few following months, Warsaw is completely uh, destroyed. Spillman is left alone to search for shelter and supplies in the ruins, and he eventually makes his way to a house where he finds a can of pickled cucumbers. This is a very slow and sad sequence, uh, like a lot of the movie, but the sequence of months passing is basically we see him become more disheveled, more malnourished, as he um, kind of scrounges and survives amongst the ruins of Warsaw like it's a 15 minute sequence it feels like of him kind of walking around and finding food falling asleep hiding waking up to the sounds of Germans running uh, again and again he tries to open it and he is noticed by an officer named Wilm Hosenfeld he learns that Spielmann is a pianist he asks him to play on a grand piano that's in the house. The uh, sickly Spielmann manages to play a ballad by Chopin. Hosenfeld lets Spielmann hide in the attic of the empty house uh, while he is regularly supplying him with food because it becomes a German headquarters, kind of, uh, as the Soviets advance on Warsaw. So it's a 
benefactor within the higher ranks of the German army here that has, I don't know if he would have taken pity on him if he was not a pianist, if that was kind of a humanizing moment for the officer, or like where his change of heart existed. We never really get to see that, but it is an element of someone in the German army, you know, being a, being a human, which does make me think of the fact that this movie shows in, in the sense of the human focus, there is mostly German officers who are like cruel bullies, which makes sense, but it also takes the time to say like there are people in there who at the very least are capable of connecting with one human, maybe, you know, which is, uh, it, it adds a lot of depth, I guess, to the to the goings-on. Yeah, I'd agree. There's a book, All the Stars We Cannot See, that humanizes a little German soldier boy. That's a pretty good read. If, uh, if you like reading, that's also about World War II. I mean, German soldiers. In January of 1945, we find out the Germans are going to be retreating from the coming Red Army. So Hosenfeld meets with Spielmann for the last time. And he says he will listen to him on Polish radio after the war. He gives Spielman his coat to keep warm. And then in spring of that same year, the concentration camp prisoners are being set free. And they pass by a POW camp holding German soldiers. And while they're shouting abuse at them, Hosenfeld hears them say one is a musician. And he asks if that man knows Spielman, which he does, and Hosenfeld says he helps Spielman and asks him to tell Spielman uh, that he is in the camp. Naming names, because it's complicated to keep saying he. After the release of the prisoners, so this is some years later, it seems. Yeah, it was kind of confusing to me, because they go back to where they were being held, but... Like, the the man who was in the concentration camp had grown hair, Mm -hmm. and uh, Vladek has gained weight. Like, a lot of time has passed for this next thing to be happening. It It seemed like it. But in the recording studio, Spielman is approached by the violinist, who tells him about the German officer. They go back to the POW camp, but it's gone. So he cannot repay the man, the German officer, who helped him last the last few years of World War II. Uh, after the war, Spielman is back at the Polish radio, where he is performing another Chopin piece to a large, prestigious audience. An epilogue states that he died in 2000, at the age of 88, Spielman did. And all that is known of Hosenfeld is that he died in 52 in Soviet captivity in a prisoner of war camp. So that is the end of the movie. Uh, Vladek has become a famous pianist and lives a full life and the people around him as might be expected from something like World War II and you know the Jewish uh, Holocaust are you know they passed away were killed died it it's it's really really tough and it's all very real and challenging so yeah it is a very good movie a very depressing movie i if you want to watch it i won't stop you from watching it but i don't know if this is one this is a movie that you have to be in the mood i don't know if i'll ever be in the mood for a movie this dour 
Yeah, I hope. Like, this is the first one on the list that we ever thought, like, we have to take a break, you know? Yeah. And that's including Grave of Fireflies and, you know, some of the other more challenging things, like Lives of Others gets very dark as well, but the ending of that one is at least uplifting. This one is just, you know, the end. Well, Wallach does become a pianist again, and he does play for an audience again. Yeah. So, yay. To steal your question again, mm-hmm. why do you think this is in the top 100? I, because it's very, it's a very real feeling movie that is easy to connect with uh, on a human level. It's convenient that the movie's in English. Thank you for that, producers. <laughs> uh, I don't understand Polish. <laughs> yeah, me neither. <laughs> That's probably why this movie did so well, because it was in English. Um. <laughs> Yeah, I, Adrian Brody has a fantastic performance as well. I've I've seen him in a few other things, but this, the acting was phenomenal. Yeah. And I don't know, it's it's just heavy. Why is this in the top one hundred movies of all time? Why is this better than other Holocaust stories? Um, I think it's a very brave look on what some men have to go through to survive, and. How humans are resilient, even in the face of extremely negative conditions. And it has a happy ending, which wasn't the case for a lot of a lot of people in World War II. America loves a happy ending. I agree on all fronts, uh, particularly on the acting front. Everything is so naturalistic and real and relatable and easy to connect to people, so... Uh, I think of of all the things listed being true, that one is one that I emphatically agree with. So, cool. Uh, should we rate it on three? Okay. Do you have any closing thoughts or? Uh, sometimes we rate movies more negatively because we don't enjoy them, and I won't do that here. One, two, three, Eight. nine. Okay, eight and a half. Works for me. Eight and a half. Yeah, very effective. Very sad. Very well made. Maybe I'd give it a nine if we watched all of it in one sitting. But I don't know if I could have stomached that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thanks for listening. Sorry yeah. for the sad episode, but... Well, you got that uh, water world yeah. <laughs> mid part. Yeah, you're welcome for that. All right. Well, uh, you know, hit us up anytime. Yeah. RookieMovieReviews.com Bum, bum, bum.